Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put his, under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, we just began looking at the life of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is the last of the three patriarchs in the Old Testament. If you've ever heard the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have you ever heard that? Um, those are the patriarchs, and that's where that phrase comes from. Jacob is the last one. In fact, Jacob is a very interesting and important figure, uh, not just in Genesis, but in the whole Old Testament, because Jacob is the one um, through whom Israel transitioned from being a family to becoming a nation. That means he's a very transitional figure in the Bible. He's a very important figure in the Bible. But the interesting thing is that um, this incredibly important, phenomenally transitional figure in the Bible is such a mess. And that's saying something because his family was a mess. In fact, if you look at the stories of the families in the book of Genesis that we've been looking at, um, the families of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. If, if you look at those families, one of the ways I've been thinking about this recently is that you know, they would make a great Netflix show. <laughs> you know how all the, or at least many of those shows on Netflix, everybody in those shows is morally compromised. 
Everyone's a mess. You know, you're looking for somebody. Breaking Bad, House of Cards, Bloodline. I mean, everybody's a mess. And Jacob is like, if he was in those shows, he'd be the one that's the worst one of the bunch. He's the black sheep of the family. He's the one that's most messed up. And that makes Jacob a very relatable character for us as modern people. Because, you know, in our movies, in our TV shows, um, all the good characters, we always see the good characters being boring and two-dimensional. They're just so flat. They're goody-goody. They're not interesting at all. But the bad characters, those are the interesting ones. Those are the ones that, you know, critics, movie critics, TV critics, love moral ambiguity. Those are the characters that we love, the bad ones, because they're so complex. They're so nuanced. They're so deep. We love all of that moral ambiguity. That's Jacob. And that makes him very relatable for us because he's such a mess. Now, this passage is all about how God meets this mess, this Jacob. And notice I did not say how Jacob meets God because Jacob is not looking for God. It's all about how God meets Jacob. After this night, Jacob is never the same. And the question here in this passage is, how does God transform people's lives, especially when everything is a mess, especially when everything is falling apart, especially when life is a disaster? How does God transform people's lives? It's all right here in this passage. And we can see how he does it by asking three questions this morning. Where was Jacob? What did he experience? And how could he experience it? All right? Where was he? What did he experience? And how could he experience it? All right? First, where was Jacob? It's important to understand um, what happened in Jacob's life right before this event. Um, Going back to last week, Jacob's father Isaac had two sons. Their names were Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the firstborn son. Esau was the favorite son, and that meant that Jacob spent his whole life watching Esau, his brother, get all of his father's love, all of his father's attention while he got none. It was very discouraging for him. And all the more so because um, before those two brothers were born, there was a prophecy about Esau and Jacob, and the prophecy said that the older son is going to serve the younger son. What does that mean? In in Genesis, the whole book of Genesis really is all about um, how God is promising to bring blessing and healing to the world through one family, one family that's going to carry within it a seed, a messianic seed, one child, one descendant who one day will come and bring uh, healing and blessing to the world, one descendant who one day will come and conquer all sin, all evil, all death, and all suffering for all time. This Messiah, this promise of this messianic seed. And the book of Genesis is all about how from generation to generation you see this this promised seed being carried along so that there's always one son in each generation and he's the carrier of the seed. He's the chosen one. He's the promised son, the one who's going to carry forth this seed. And the thing is that Jacob was supposed to be the one that was chosen. God had said, Jacob, you're the one that I want to be the guy who's going to carry forth this messianic blessing. But Isaac, his father, his favorite was Esau. And so Isaac insisted on giving that blessing to Esau instead. And so what Jacob did was he dressed up, he disguised himself as his brother Esau, and he went into his father who was old and blind and couldn't tell the difference, and he stole the blessing from his brother Esau. And after that moment, his life completely fell apart. 
His brother was so angry that he wanted to kill him. Uh, Jacob had to run for his life. And he spends the next 20 years in exile from his family, from his homeland, from his home. His life completely falls apart. And right here in the beginning of this passage, in the very first two verses, we get this very brief but incredibly vivid picture of where Jacob was at at this point in his life right now. So notice, very skillful, how how the, the narrator actually tells us what Jacob's life was like at this time. First, it says he came to a certain place. Now, we find out later that this place actually had a name, but one of the things this story is doing right now is that in keeping the name of this place anonymous, it's saying that Jacob was nowhere. He was nowhere in life. Next, it says that um, he put a stone under his head and lay down to sleep. Have you ever tried to sleep on a stone? He had a stone for a pillow. Not only is he nowhere, but he has nothing. And lastly, it says that the reason Jacob stayed in this place was because the sun had set. In other words, Jacob's life had gone dark, okay? He was nowhere. He has nothing. He has no one. Everything is completely dark. But not only is his life dark, when it says the sun had set, it's the story's way of telling us that not only was Jacob's life dark, but heaven was dark to him also. Heaven was shut off to him And one of the most important things about this story is that right here, in the first two verses, we see that in the very darkest moment of his life, Jacob isn't looking for God. He's not praying. He's not crying out to God. He's not talking about God. He's not seeking God. He's not looking for God at all. Heaven is dark. And understand something. That does not mean that Jacob doesn't believe in God. It means that God is not a meaningful part of his reality. God is not a solution to his problems. And that means, by the way, that Jacob is actually a perfect example for us of what it means to live in a modern, secular world. For instance, there are many sociologists, philosophers, cultural commentators uh, use a word to describe the world that we live in, this modern, late modern, postmodern, secular world that we live in. Um, It's a word, disenchantment. And what they say is that in our modern, rational, scientific, intellectual world, they say that that this world is disenchanted. Not disenchanted in the sense of being disappointed about something, but disenchanted in the sense of not enchanted. What does enchanted mean? For ancient people, uh, ancient people believed that the world was, how should we say it, spiritually inhabited, that the world was spiritually alive, that the world was porous. It was open to divine activity, open to divine intervention, open to the action and the work of God in this world. The the world was a spiritually inhabited place. It was enchanted. But now what we live in is what's called a disenchanted world. So what we would say nowadays is that God no longer plays any meaningful role in our world, in our society, or in our life. You might believe in him privately, But God plays no meaningful role in our world. The idea that God actually cares about this world or that he would be involved in this world, disenchantment says that's an illusion. Heaven is dark. So for instance, um, I was just reading about this recently. Many millennials in China um, uh, have adopted a worldview that's called Sung. Um, Sung culture... Song is a word that comes from the Chinese character associated with the word for funeral, and it's a word that means despondency or hopelessness. 
Um, for many young people in China, uh, they have very little, if, if no hope, of ever getting a job that pays good or well, of ever being able to afford a decent home, of ever being able to get married, of ever being able to retire someday. Oh, and by the way, they have also incredible social pressure to do all of those things, and then after all of that's done, to take care of your parents when they get old. There's, there's incredible pressure to succeed and very limited, almost no opportunity to succeed. So they've adopted this worldview. It's called song culture. So it's, it, they have their own TV shows and internet celebrities and mobile games. There's even um, like teas that you can buy like, that have names like Achieved Absolutely Nothing Black Tea or My Ex's Life is Better Than Mine Fruit Tea. Um, things like that. There's an there's an attitude and a culture of despondency and hopelessness in their culture. Heaven is dark. It's a disenchanted world. And friends, you realize when we look at America, things are very similar here. Many people in our society would say the same thing about their own prospects for hope in this world. Hope of a good job. Hope of a decent home. We look at this world and we say, is there any hope? When we look at the problems and the challenges of our society, so many of them seem insurmountable. We've got political division, racial division. We ask, is there any hope? Many African Americans in our country right now are asking, is there any hope of racial justice in our world? We're out in the streets trying, but we don't know. We, no, not many people were surprised by the verdict that came down last week. It's very difficult for people to find hope in our culture right now. Hope of, of political unity, of racial unity, of economic justice, of racial justice. Very despondent, very hopeless. We say there may be hope, but not from God. Our only hope is if we make the world the place it's supposed to be. If we make the world the place that we believe it ought to be. That's the only way it's going to happen. God may exist, but if he does, he doesn't care. And he's certainly not at work in this world. And here's the thing, we all, all of us live in a disenchanted world. And that means whether you believe in God or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, all of us have been trained by this disenchanted world to respond to the problems and the difficulties and the challenges of life, to respond to those things in very specific ways. So we live in a scientific world. That means that we expect to have answers for everything. We live in a technological world. That means that we expect to have control over our lives, don't we? And we expect that control to be getting faster and faster and faster. That's the world we live in. And that actually leads us to our next point. You see, heaven is dark. That's where Jacob's life is at right now. And I'll tell you, that's where a lot of us are today. We live in this world, but heaven is dark. It's really hard sometimes to believe that God is at work in this world much less to believe that God is actually at work in my life. And this passage is saying it's in the hopelessness. It's in the despair. It's in the darkness. That's where God moves into our lives. And it leads to our next point. We've just seen, where is Jacob? The next question is, what does Jacob experience? What does he experience here? He sees things. He hears things. It says he falls asleep and has a dream. Well, what does he see? What does he hear? He sees three things. And by the way, it's... It, when you're reading the Bible and you, and you see the word behold, pay attention because that's the Bible's way of saying, check this out. 
That's the Bible's way of saying red arrows, neon lights, this is important, don't miss this. You have to pay really close attention to what's coming after this word behold. And there are three beholds in these next couple of verses, starting in verse 12. What does Jacob see? Verse 12, it says, Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, that word ladder really means something more like a giant stairway or a giant ramp. Um, Ladder's an okay translation, but, you know, only one person can move up and down a ladder at a time. It's more like a giant stairway or a giant ramp. But the next thing Jacob sees is, verse 12, it says, Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder. Now, what are angels? Angels, the the word literally means messengers. So angels are, are messengers of God. They're royal servants of God and his royal power. So when Jacob sees angels going up and down this stairway, what he's seeing is probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of angels going down into the world, being messengers of God, being servants of God's work in the world, and then going back up into heaven. It's like the royal power of God moving into the world and then going back up into heaven. That's what he's seeing here. But the very next thing he sees after this is even more incredible because lastly in verse 13 we read, Behold, the Lord stood above it. Now, many people debate how to translate this because it's possible that it could be translated above it, meaning above the ladder. But it's also very possible grammatically that this could be translated, the Lord stood over him or beside him, that is, over Jacob. And, and many of the commentators that, um, that I trust the most uh, actually say this is the way it's supposed to be translated. That's the way that it should be translated. And I agree with them. And one of the reasons is this. Whenever God talks to people in the Bible, um, if he's far away from them, it'll say that God called to them. But if he's near, it'll say God said. And in this passage, it says God said. God is near to Jacob in this passage. He's standing right over him. And this is what he sees a giant stairway in and out of heaven. Angels of God, God's royal power moving up and coming down, up and down this giant stairway. And then the Lord himself comes and stands next to Jacob. He's near to him as the person who's sitting next to you in your seat. And then what does Jacob hear God say? It's amazing. What does he hear? The first thing that he hears is God repeats the blessing to him. The blessing that he stole from his father, God himself repeats repeats the blessing to Jacob. It's the blessing that God gave to Abraham. It's the blessing that God gave to Isaac. It's the blessing that, my son, through you, I am bringing my blessing and my healing into the world. Through your family, I want to bring healing to the world. Jacob, you are the one I have chosen. And through you and your family, I'm going to do it. That's what he hears. But it's even more amazing than that because right after that, do you notice what comes next? God himself says, behold, Verse 15, God says, behold, behold what? God says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Friends, there are three incredible promises in this statement. First, God promises his presence to Jacob. Did you notice that? He says, I am with you. Jacob, you never have to worry about being alone. I am with you. But secondly, God promises his protection for Jacob. 
He says, I'm gonna be with you wherever you go, Jacob. I'm gonna watch over you. I'm gonna take care of you. I'm not gonna let anything bad happen to you. Not only will I be with you even though you feel forsaken right now, I'm gonna protect you even though you feel like you're all alone in this world and nobody's watching out for you. And the last thing he says is, not only is he gonna be with him and he's gonna protect him, but he's gonna bring him home. He says, I will bring you back to this place. I will bring you back home. I'm gonna give you my presence. I'm gonna give you protection and I'm gonna give you a homecoming. I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna reunite you, reconcile you to your family and to your loved ones so that your life will be woven back together again. Friends, God gives Jacob a new perspective. He, he gives him a glimpse of a different reality, a real reality. It's, it's almost as if God peels back the curtain a little bit so that Jacob can see that the world that he's living in that he thinks is a disenchanted world, so that he can see that this idea that, that this world I'm in is dark, that this world is disenchanted, to show Jacob that that's the illusion and that you really are living in a world that is inhabited by God, alive by God, and that God is at work and alive and moving everywhere in this world and everywhere in your life. Because what does Jacob say at the very end of that? As soon as the dream is over, what does he say? Surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. In other words, he says, God was here the whole time, but I couldn't see it. I wouldn't see it. And friends, there are always places in this world where God is moving, where God is peeling back the curtain, as it were, and showing us that he's far more involved in this world, far more involved in our lives than, than we could ever possibly imagine. For instance, there's a, a sociologist named Peter Berger, very famous, very influential. He actually just passed away recently. Peter Berger wrote a book many years ago called A Rumor of Angels. And in that book, he talked about what he called signals of transcendence. Isn't that kind of a neat phrase? What does that mean? Signals of transcendence. He says signals of transcendence are things that appear in this world that actually point to another world. Signals of transcendence are things that appear in this world, but that actually point us to another world. So he gives an example. He says, imagine a little child that wakes up in the middle of the night, um, perhaps from a bad dream, and finds himself surrounded by darkness, alone, and beset by nameless threats and fears. And then he says, imagine, you know, obviously what happens next is the mother comes in and she takes the child in her arms, she cradles him, maybe turns on a light in the room so that they're surrounded by this soft, reassuring glow. And then she begins to sing or to speak to her child. And, and what does she say? She always, it's always some variation of the same words. Don't be afraid. Everything is in order. Everything is all right. And then Peter Berger asks the question. It's brilliant. He says, when the mother says, everything is in order, when she says, everything is all right, is she lying? Is she lying? Here's what Peter Berger says about this. At the very center of the process of becoming fully human, we find an experience of trust in the order of reality. Is this experience an illusion? And is the individual who represents it a liar? He says, if there is no other world, then the ultimate truth about this world is that eventually it will kill the child as it will kill the mother. The final truth then would not be love, but terror, not light, but darkness. For in the end, we must all find ourselves in darkness alone with the night that will swallow us up. 
the face of reassuring love, that mother's face of reassuring love, bending over our terror would then be nothing except an image of merciful illusion if there is no other world. Friends, this world is filled with all kinds of places and things and events and phenomena that peel back the curtain and say to us, in effect, don't be afraid. Everything is all right. Everything is in order. Surely God is in this place, and we did not know it. We live in a disenchanted world, but if reality really is disenchanted, then why are we always trying to re-enchant it? Why are so many of our most famous and popular movies and books and TV shows, why are so many of them about a world beyond this world? Why are so many of you so excited that season two of Stranger Things is coming out next month? (laughs) If this world is all there is, then why does the fact that this world is the way it is, why does that bother us so much? Because if this world is all there is, then, then ultimate reality really is nothing more than a hodgepodge of totally random events, completely unrelated and utterly meaningless. And that means that, that all of these events, they may feel evil, they may feel wrong, they may feel like they're out of place, out of order, but they're not. That feeling that we have is just an illusion if this world is all there is. But friends, the fact that we feel that way is a very strong indicator that this world isn't all there is and that there is a reality beyond this reality. This passage tells us that there is, in fact, another world and that that world has, in fact, invaded this world. When everything looks dark, God is at work in this world. And that's the first thing Jacob learns here. But secondly, Jacob learns that God is at work in our lives. Not just in the world, but in our lives. Because what's the other thing Jacob says when he wakes up after the dream? In verse 17, he says, it says that he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? Now, literally what he said was, how fearful is this place? It's the same word. He was afraid, how fearful is this place? Now, here's the question. Why is Jacob so afraid? And the answer is, for the same reason that anybody else who comes into Direct contact with the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God in the Bible is terrified. So when God meets Moses at the burning bush, it says Moses fell down on his face and was terrified. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, it says that Isaiah had this vision in the temple of the glory of God. And the angels of God were there and, and Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I am undone. He's terrified. Or Peter When Peter was out fishing one night, all night, and they didn't catch any fish, and Jesus tells him at the end of the night, he said, hey, Peter, let down your nets. And Peter's like, Lord, we didn't catch any fish at all, but whatever, I'll let down my nets. And when they bring up so many fish that the boat's about to sink, Peter realizes who this is. And the next thing he says is, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He's terrified when he comes into the presence of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. And that is how we would respond if we came into that presence ourselves. Jacob is terrified because all of a sudden he realizes he's met the living God. And the big question is, how is it that I'm still alive? How can that be? How can it possibly be? There's only one answer, and it leads us to our last Uh, point. We've seen where Jacob was. We've seen what he experienced. And the last thing we need to see is how he can possibly experience it. 
Because here's the thing, whenever God shows up in his glory and his holiness and his majesty, all of that, we, we suddenly realize how unglorious and how unholy we really are. And that's Jacob at this point. He's defrauded his father, he's lied to his brother, he's cheated everybody, he's on the run for his life, his life is a disaster, his life has fallen apart, and he's not even looking for God. He's not looking for forgiveness, he's not looking for grace, he's not looking for God, and yet here God shows up, stands over him, and offers him words of total, unconditional love and acceptance, unconditional tenderness and mercy and grace in his life. How in the world can that happen? Here's how. Jacob realizes, and he says at the very end, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, when he's talking about the house of God, when he mentions the gate of heaven, all of the commentators, all of the scholars, all of the experts in Hebrew narrative, they all point out the very same thing about this, that when Jacob talks about the gate of heaven, it's deliberately referring back to Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. The story of the Tower of Babel is all about what happened when the people got together to build a tower that reached up to heaven. It was called a ziggurat, and it was a stairway to heaven, and here's how it worked. You would, um, you would pray, you would purify yourself, you'd go through all kinds of ritual washings and things like that, you'd make some sacrifices and some offerings, and then you'd take your sacrifices, you'd take your offerings, you'd take your prayers, you'd take all your hard work, and then you would walk up that stairway. You would go up the tower, and then you would ascend into the heavens to meet with God. And if you were lucky, if you did everything just right, then maybe, just maybe, God would accept you. And you would get the favor of the gods because you ascended up into the heavens and you brought your sacrifices and your offerings. The principle is the same. If you work really hard, you can get up to God. And that is the way every single religion works. If you work really hard, you can get up to God. If you want God's favor, if you want God's love, well... Here's what you're going to have to do. Here's how you're going to have to live. Here's how you're going to have to conduct your life. Here are the rules to obey. It's the same principle in every religion. Whether it's the eightfold path of Buddhism or the five pillars of Islam or the Tao of Confucianism or transcendental meditation or yoga or whatever it is, here are the rules, here are the steps, here are the techniques. If you work really hard, then you can get up to God. If you work really hard, then you can achieve salvation however you define it. And by the way, we love this approach because it gives us control and helps us to manage the threat level. <laughs> you know, that helps us to get God down from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1 because we're in control. We're the ones who are working really hard. And if we do it right, if we obey all the rules, then we can say, God, you owe me now. I've done everything you told me to do. The principle is if we work really hard, we can get up to God. But that's not Jacob here. Did you notice that? I mean, Jacob... Jacob is not working hard to get to God. In fact, Jacob's doing nothing. He's not trying to be holy. He's the opposite of holy. And yet God comes to him in grace and love and tenderness and unconditional acceptance. How can that be? Here's how. Hundreds of years later, when Jesus Christ began his public ministry in Galilee, he had a conversation with a young skeptic named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel met Jesus. You can read about this, by the way, in the Gospel of John chapter 1 at the very end of that chapter. The skeptic, Nathaniel, comes to Jesus, and he's, he's, he's dubious of who Jesus is. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
You know, he doesn't, he's skeptical. But Jesus has this conversation with him, and, and he says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this is kind of funny, actually. We don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Maybe he was praying, maybe he was weeping. We just don't know. But whatever he was doing under that tree, it was so intimate and it was so meaningful and significant to him that when Jesus told him, I saw you under the fig tree, it blows right through all of his intellectual doubts, right through all of his skepticism. And he says to Jesus, you saw me under the fig tree? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's what he says. And Jesus says something amazing after that. He refers back to this passage and he says this, because I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't just point the way to God, I am the way to God. He's saying, I don't just tell you all the steps you gotta do to climb the stairway, I am the stairway. I am, this is not a stairway that, that starts at earth and, and points up into the heavens, no. I'm the stairway that came down out of heaven to the earth. Jesus is the gate of heaven. He is the bridge. He is the stairway. Jesus is the intersection of heaven and earth. And the only way that he could punch a hole from heaven to earth was to allow himself to have his hands and his feet punched holes in them when they nailed him to the cross. I mean, don't you see? The gospel does not tell you, here's what you gotta do in order to get up to God. The gospel says, here's what Jesus has done to get down to you. How can Jesus bring comfort and love and forgiveness and grace and tenderness, tenderness into the lives of Jacobs like you and me? Because on the cross, Jesus became Jacob. Jacob was lonely. Jacob was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was in exile. He was rejected. Jacob's life was full of darkness. But it was nothing compared to the infinite cosmic loneliness and forsakenness, and friendlessness, and exile, and rejection, and darkness that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus went into the ultimate darkness so that heaven could open up to us. Friends, the only way heaven can ever be open to you, the only way that, that you can encounter God and see him moving into your life, moving into your darkness, your pain, your mess, the only way that you can experience God's promise of, of presence and protection and homecoming, all the things that your heart longs for, the only way you can experience any of that is to see Jesus on the cross and to hear him saying, the only way any of that can happen is over my dead body, literally. He is the bridge. He is the gate of heaven. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, now you can know that God is at work in the world. We will never know all the reasons that all the things that happen in the world happen. We'll never know why the world seems so dark sometimes. We'll never know why all of God's blessings of uh, promises of healing and blessing, why, why they seem so far away, why justice seems so impossible, why peace seems so elusive, why, why the world feels and seems so dark sometimes. We'll never know any of that. But there is one thing we can know. When we see Jesus on the cross, we can know it's not because God doesn't care. 
And we can know also that it's not because God isn't doing something about it. Because friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate signal of transcendence. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's guarantee right here, right now, in history, in this world, in this reality, that darkness's days are numbered. And that one day, all of the joy and the peace and the light and the justice of heaven itself will shine forever in this world. The cross is daybreak. Light has dawned. Heaven is opened through Jesus Christ. And if you see him doing that for you, not only can you know, therefore, that he's at work in the world, you can know that he's at work in your life. That no matter who you are or what you've done or what's happened to you, no matter, no matter, even if you're not looking for God, you can know that this is a God who's looking for you. And the question, therefore, is how are you going to respond to God like that? Are you willing to let this God help himself to your life? Are you willing to take your hands off your life and give this God control of your life? Let me offer one thought to you as we close, one encouragement to you. It's very easy to think that we have to do that perfectly. Don't let the thought that you have to do this perfectly keep you from doing it at all. None of us will ever be able to do this perfectly. Did you notice how Jacob responds to everything at the very end of the passage? He makes a vow. Did you notice what the first word of the vow is? If. God, if you will do all these things for me, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, if you will take care of me, if you will bless me and fulfill all your promises to me, if you do all of this, God, then... You will be my God. Then I will serve you. Jacob is full of conditions. He's full of ifs. God has no conditions. There are no conditions. There are no ifs in God's love for you. We're full of ifs, but God is full of none. His love for you is unconditional. There are no ifs in his love for you. He never says, if you do this or if you do that, then I'll love you because he's already done everything. Don't let the fact that you will never be able to give your life to God perfectly, don't let the fact that you will never be able to serve him perfectly, don't let the fact that you will never be able to take your hands off your life perfectly, don't let that keep you from giving as much of yourself to God as you can right now. Your life will always be filled with ifs. Mine is just like Jacob. Our lives are always gonna be filled with ifs, but there are no ifs in God's love for you. There are no conditions on God's love for you. Let him move into the darkness, into the pain and the mess of your life. Let him move into your world, into your reality and make you all that he wants you to be and do with you all that he wants you to do. You'll never be the same. You will be a different person. Give yourself to this God because he's already given everything for you. Let's pray.